Amen. That's a sermon series we began two weeks, September the 8th, and we're really excited about this. Some of you will notice just from the branding of that, that it really does carry on from a vision that we believe God gave to us a number of years ago, began three years ago with a vision for our nation and for our world, telling us how we could move from a single church and a single site to impact multiple people in multiple places throughout the world. And three years later, we can see the incredible things that, that God has done, leading us to, to partner with churches, not only in this nation, throughout the world. But just inheriting the land is one thing but actually uh, impacting the land and influencing the land in the way that God wants us to is quite another. And that's what we're looking at through that impact series. And we hope that you will join us beginning September the 8th. But for today, we continue in Romans chapter 15. If you have a Bible, turn there, Romans chapter 15. We are going to continue our summer of love uh, conversation by looking at another of those one another passages that Paul fleshes out in Romans 12 through 16. So open your Bible, Romans chapter 15, and we're going to read from verse 14 through verse 22, Romans 15, beginning at verse 14. Paul says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except that except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. This is Paul's Part of Paul's conclusion of his letter begins there in verse uh, 14 of Romans 15 and fleshes itself out into chapter 16. He's starting to wrap up the letter, and as he wraps this up, he introduces another of those one another statements. We've already had two in Romans 15. The first one was live in harmony with one another. And a few weeks ago, we pointed out that living in harmony is not the same thing as living at peace. Peace leads to harmony, but harmony leads to glory. Last week, Steve talked about accepting one another, how these ro uh, these, this Roman church made up of Hebrews, uh, Jewish believers, made up of God-fearers, Gentiles who become Jews but hadn't been circumcised, and these Gentiles 
We're now called to accept one another and model what it's like to be different people from different places with even different opinions on important things, but nonetheless to be led to live in harmony and unity with one another. And he continues this by giving them this instruction. Instruct one another. Instruct one another. Now, if you have a look at the verse here, verse 14, you notice that specifically uh, Paul says to them that they are competent to instruct one another. You're filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. That word competent is the word from which we get power. It's another one of those power words in Romans 15. It has the idea of being able to do something, being effective to do something. Such effectiveness as a Christian can be divinely inspired. God makes us effective through his Holy Spirit. But here it actually means that they were able to instruct, they were competent to instruct by virtue of their own ability and by virtue of their own resources. Now, it's not that they possess such ability intrinsically, but that they've cultivated that ability over time. Now, if you ever look at the text again, verse 14 is preceded by verse 13, understandably. But in verse 13, Paul talks about, look at the text, the work of the Holy Spirit in them. They are competent. They have this ability intrinsically within themselves because they have allowed the Holy Spirit to change them on the inside. So here's the point. When we allow the Holy Spirit to do what he was sent to do, what is supernatural to us before the Spirit came becomes natural to us when we allow the Spirit to do his job. The supernatural becomes natural to a person who's been supernaturally reborn. This is the idea. They were competent because they'd allowed the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does. So, what does the Holy Spirit do? What are the qualities that made them competent? Again, have a look at the text. The text here tells us that there were two qualities that made them competent. Firstly, they were full of goodness. This is the way the text starts. This means there was a moral righteousness about them. Again, not in and of themselves, but through the work of the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean that they were perfect, far from it, but it does mean that they were sensitive to their own walk with God. They were quick to make corrections to their own life before they started to speak truth into others. In other words, to take the parable of Jesus, they were quicker to take the plank out of their own eye before they examined the speck in someone else's. In other words, this phrase, full of goodness, speaks of integrity. These were people of integrity, and people of integrity are competent to instruct other people. They were full of goodness. Secondly, we're told they were filled with knowledge. Filled with knowledge. Whatever instruction is, it is based on knowledge. Knowledge of God's specific will for a specific situation. This is the idea with filled with knowledge. 
It's not that they knew everything that there was to know. It's just their integrity, their obedience to the Holy Spirit in their own life made them receptive to what the Spirit was saying, and in a certain moment, that receptivity played it out in someone else's life, someone who was related to them. Let me explain it by way of a story. I heard about a farmer who lived in a small town and went to a small rural church. One Sunday, he entered church, and as he was there, he saw that it was only him and the pastor in church. And so the pastor walks up to the farmer and says, well, it looks like it's uh, you and me today. Do you still want me to give my message? The farmer looked at the pastor and said, well, pastor, I'm not smart, but if I want to feed my cattle and only one cow shows up, I still feed them. So do your message. So the pastor goes up into the pulpit and 15 minutes passed and he's still going. 30 minutes passed and he's still going. 45 minutes passed and he finishes his message, gives the prayer, says amen, comes down from the pulpit, sits by the side of the farmer and says, so what do you think? The farmer looked at the pastor and says, well, pastor, I'm not very smart, but if I want to feed my cattle and only one showed up, I wouldn't give him all the hay. <laughs> Filled with knowledge. It doesn't mean that they were full of everything. It means that they had the ability to give a specific word to a specific person for a specific reason in a specific season. They could do that because they were filled with goodness. They were basically the type of people who realized that making course corrections to their own life in obedience to what the Spirit was saying was an active part of what it means to have a relationship with God. This is why the Christian faith isn't a religion, it's a relationship. This is what we mean. And so, whatever instruction is, it's based on integrity, and secondly, it's based on wisdom. Integrity and wisdom. Now, what does instruction mean? If you were to look up that word in the New Testament, you'd see it being translated in a number of ways. Firstly, it's translated as exhortation, to exhort. Secondly, it's translated as to admonish. Thirdly, it's even translated as to counsel. So when you instruct, you admonish, you exhort, you counsel, but it's also used by Paul in Ephesus like this, Ephesians chapter 20, verse 31. So, Paul says, this is to the Ephesian elders he's about to leave to go to Jerusalem. He says, be on your guard. Remember that for three years, hold on to that, it's going to be important. For three years, I never stopped warning. There's that word again, instruct. I never stopped warning each of, each of you night and day with tears, warning, admonishing, instructing, exhorting, counseling, warning. So clearly then, instruction here doesn't refer to the type of conversations we may have with another person over coffee, in a Bible class. No, it actually means that we are speaking sense into someone's life at a specific moment for a specific reason, for a specific time. 
Notice how Paul, in this verse, warned them. He warned them from the foundation of a relationship that was developed over how many years? Three years. What's the foundation for instruction? What's the foundation for admonishment? What's the foundation for warning? It is the foundation of a relationship established over time where the people in Ephesus knew Paul accepted them no matter what. Paul did his utmost to live in harmony with them no matter what. And out of this basis, he admonished them. He warned them. Friends, this is how admonishment works. This is how this type of instruction works. It works from the basis of a strong relational foundation. So that's what instruction is. And they were competent, this Roman church, to do it. The question is, are we? Are we filled with goodness? Are we filled, not simply with knowledge from all the classes that we've ever attended, but filled with wisdom because our relationship with God is so strong that we sense the Spirit of God correcting our own lives? And thirdly, do do we have the type of relationships with one another that allows us to speak these words of redirection to one another? All, All too often are these words of instruction parachuted in because we spot something wrong. Unfortunately, I think that latter example is how we often admonish rather than the example that Paul sets here. So having looked at what admonishment and instruction means, let's have a look at what it entails. Now, if you have a look at the letter of Romans and you have a look at Paul's writing, you'll see that there are at least three qualities that make admonishment work. Three things that we need to bear in mind. We need to recognize that when we instruct someone, it needs to be done with affirmation. Secondly, we remember that when we instruct someone, it needs to be done with the purpose of their growth. And thirdly, we need to remember that instruction is done without compromise. Those three things, with affirmation, for someone's growth, and without compromise. Let's have a look at this one first, with affirmation. As I've already said, in Romans 15, from verse 14 here, Paul is starting to wrap up his letter. The Roman church, like the Ephesian church, is probably one of the most well-taught churches in all of the New Testament. What's interesting is that in his introduction, from verse 1 all the way through, and to most of the way through, about verse 13 of the opening chapter, and in chapter 15, from verse 14 through the end, notice how Paul affirms them. We've already looked at a couple of examples of this In verse 14, he says, you're full of goodness. He affirms them. He says, wow, you are filled with knowledge. He says, you are competent to instruct. There's affirmation going on here. He does exactly the same thing at the beginning of the letter. One example, Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. Look at how he affirms them. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Notice the affirmation. He's affirming them. 
Paul goes out of his way to affirm their spiritual vitality and their faith. Now, what's amazing here is that none of these qualities actually trace their way back to him because he's never been there. Paul has never been to the Roman church. So he doesn't have the relational foundation to admonish them in the way that he did the Ephesian church, in the way that he did the Corinthian church. He doesn't have the relational foundation to do it. This will become important, as we'll see in just a moment. So the point is this, healthy instruction, healthy warning, healthy exhortation is built on a relationship, but it requires affirmation. It requires affirmation. So the command to accept one another, for example, ensures that when a person is admonished by another believer, they are able to hold on to the fact, the person being admonished is able to hold on to the fact that the person instructing them really does love them and has their best interest at heart. Now, this is important because having sense spoken to us is easier to reject than it is to accept, right? Without that relational affirmation, without the foundation of a relationship that's proven no matter what you do, no matter how far you drift, they still love you, without that foundation, it's easier for a person being admonished, warned, exhorted to a different type of behavior to actually reject what is being said and to walk away. It's easier to reject admonishment than it is to accept it. So here's the question. Do you affirm those you admonish? There is wisdom to the sandwich principle. Don't tell me you've never heard of this, right? If you're going to speak a word of correction, make sure you sandwich it between words of affirmation. Affirm, redirect, affirm. But when you correct, do you even do that? All too often, admonishment doesn't work because we're so frustrated by what is going on that we speak the correction before we speak out affirmation. Friends, that's not the best way to give a word of admonishment. Paul begins with affirmation, then seeks to redirect from chapter 1, verse 14, all the way through until chapter 15, verse 13. And then he affirms them again. We need to do the same thing. If we're going to admonish, instruct, warn, exhort. We have to do so with affirmation. And if we don't do that, it's probably best we don't admonish at all because we don't have the foundation to do it. Instruction is based on integrity and wisdom, but it's built as well on affirmation. So, affirmation. Secondly, it's done for a person's growth. For a person's growth. If you read the Scriptures, you'll discover that instructing someone like this is to enable someone to grow from infancy spiritually onto maturity. And there are so many examples of this. I've chosen one, Hebrews chapter 12. And the author of Hebrews writes this in verses 7 and 8. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as His children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, 
and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. So the point here then is that a child is set to receive instruction, discipline, not simply for their good, but for their growth into adulthood. Here's the problem with this. Too many Christians seek to admonish another believer, not for their growth, that believer's growth, but because they see that person as wrong. Here's here's what the New Testament teaches. It's God's job to correct the wrong, not ours. God may use us in the process, and He does use us in the process, but our motivation can never be to correct the wrong, but to help a person grow. God doesn't need our help cleaning up His kids. In John 16, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the time when he will ascend to the Father. And Jesus says, listen, I need to go up so that the Holy Spirit can come down and do his work. And Jesus spends quite a significant amount of time telling people what his work is. And there in the middle of that chapter, he says these words. When he, the Holy Spirit, comes... Now remember, verse 13 of Romans 15 talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin. Who proves people to be in the wrong about sin? The Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's job to prove people wrong. He does use us in that process, but our motivation in instructing people is helping them grow, not pointing out the wrong. Here's the question. When we admonish people, do we do it for their growth or because they're wrong? Do we think that God wants us to instruct, encourage, exhort, warn, counsel, because he doesn't want wrong things happening in his church? Do we think that we admonish because God has made us some kind of secret police in his own service? Do we think it's our job to to actually go around and cleaning up people? Unfortunately, when an evangelical Christian makes a statement today, that's often the way it comes over. It comes over that we're more concerned with the wrong than we are with the person being encouraged to do what's right. And the motivation here makes all the difference in the world because misguided motivation derails admonishment and it actually stunts the person's growth. They've seen through the motive, and they want nothing to do with the self-righteousness, not the righteousness that comes through Christ. And I honestly believe if there's a lesson the evangelical church needs to learn today, it's to stop pointing the finger when people do wrong. Somebody told me many years ago, Craig, when you point the finger at someone, remember, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. Friends, the reason we instruct, the reason we warn, the reason we exhort, the reason we encourage, the reason we counsel is not because they're doing something wrong, but because God has so much more for them if they'd actually embrace what's right. There's a fundamental difference between the two. And admonishment goes wrong when we're seeking to point out the wrong rather than inspire people to grow. So we do it with affirmation. We do it with the right motivation for someone to grow. And thirdly, we do it avoiding compromise. 
I'm intrigued by verse 15. Now read verse 15 off the basis of what we already know about Paul. Paul had never visited the Roman church. In Ephesus, where he stayed for three years, he warned them, he says, night and day with tears. He had the relational foundation to do this, but he'd never been to Rome. So how's he going to do this thing? How's he going to warn? How's he going to exhort? How's he going to counsel? Look at the words of verse 15. He, He actually says, I have written to you, what? Quite boldly on some points. This is the only part of the text where I think Paul must have been a Brit. He must have been an Englishman, because in, in the UK, we like that word, word quite. It's one of those royal words. Oh, that's quite nice. What does that actually mean? Quite quaint. I've been quite bold. Does Paul strike you as a quite bold type of guy? He's an all or nothing guy, right? He's either in or he's out, but he recognizes, wait a minute, I haven't got the relational foundation to do this, so guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to dip my toe into the water here, and I'm going to hope at some point I'm going to get the opportunity to be there, because when I'm there, I'll have more of the foundation to continue this conversation on. He recognizes that he has the responsibility to, to basically guide and guard the Gentile church, but he doesn't have the relational foundation to step in as boldly as he would like. Now, what's interesting with this, quite bold, is the fact that Paul is writing the letter to the church in Rome from Corinth. Why is that significant? Have a look at this verse right here, 2 Corinthians. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid, notice the speech marks, that refers to an accusation that they were making about Paul, that he was timid when face to face with them, but bold towards you when I'm away. Now, stop there for a second. What was the accusation that the Corinthians were making? It is far easier to be bold when you don't look someone in the eye. How many of you know that's true? Just look at my inbox and I'll show you it's true. (laughs) It's amazing how bold we can get through the pen. It's amazing how bold we can get through the keyboard on social media. Right? What has social media descended into? An opportunity to compromise what admonishment really is. Because admonishment is actually done personally and directly. It's not done indirectly and impersonally. And Paul knows this. The Corinthians said, Paul, it's okay for you. you. You've got the courage to be bold when you're not with us. But when you're with us, you just go weak at the knees. And look at what he says. He says, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. In other words, you think that, you wait till I get there. No compromise here. 
He's going to speak the truth to them from eye to eye, personally, directly. This is the way admonishment is done. So let me ask you this question. When it comes to admonishment, do you talk more to someone else about someone or to that someone? Do you actually have more courage to gossip about a person than you do to actually address the person, person to person? Let me just say this. If you do, you have no right to admonish. In fact, the person that you are gossiping to has the scriptural responsibility to stop you in your tracks and admonish you. This is the point here. Many of us live out this. The fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Many of us are so frightened of people that even when we've laid that foundation to instruct and to redirect, we go weak at the knees. Listen, there's a right way of doing this, and that's personally and directly. There's a wrong way of doing this, talking about people rather than to people, but there's also the, the reality that we need to become strong in spirit and speak to those who God has brought into our life when we see them drifting off on a path that isn't good for them. We do it with affirmation. We do it for their growth, but we do it without compromise. Again, that question, are you quicker to talk about someone than to that someone? If we are, we really should be admonished. So, we've looked at competency, what makes us competent to instruct. We, we've looked at what it is. We've looked at what it entails. As we close this message, let's start to look at, okay, how do I react when I'm being admonished? As I've looked at the scriptures on this, I've kind of summarized our reactions to this and some of the reactions that Paul deals with in his letters with, with kind of four things. There are four ways I think we can respond to admonishment. The first one is this, we can resent it and get angry. We can resent it and get angry. Obviously, I'm assuming here that somebody is trying to instruct, warn, encourage, or, or exhort counsel us for the right reasons and based on relationship. Where there is no relationship, where they haven't got your growth at heart, it can sometimes be understandable to get angry, but that's not what we're talking about. If someone is doing it for the right reasons, there is that temptation for us to resent it and get angry. I believe that this is a problem today because we live in a world where faith is being privatized. The freedom of religion that our Constitution gives us is being redefined as a freedom to worship for one hour, one day a week. What you do, what you think in here is good for you, but when you're out there, you basically told the line. But the reality is, for us, there's no such thing as a private faith in a resurrected Jesus. So, so this, the reality of someone getting angry when you kind of point out what the Scripture says is more prevalent today because people think that faith is a personal thing. And it is a personal thing. 
But the glory of God is only seen when it becomes a corporate thing. Proverbs 10, verse 8. I love the message paraphrase of this. This is what it says. The wise heart takes orders, but an empty head comes unglued. If we respond to admonishment with an empty head, which basically means, uh, which leads to being unglued, which means ruin, if we respond to it this way, our life is basically on a path to destruction. This is the point of the parable. From looking at my own life, when often it's my wife, right? And in those moments, it's, it's like really difficult to take that word of admonishment, especially when it's from somebody close to you who knows you really, really well. What I've recognized is often I'm tempted to become angry when there's actually an issue that's bubbling on the inside that I need to deal with. Any of you with me on that? The truth actually hurts. And I'm tempted to become angry because pain hurts. If you get angry when someone seeks to redirect your life, can I suggest that you take a moment before you say anything and just say, Holy Spirit, would you just shine the light on what's going on on the inside here that makes me think that I have a right to get angry? I believe in that moment when you do that, the Holy Spirit will start to illuminate a part of your life that he wants to deal with on the inside, and then you'll start to change. Secondly here, we can accept it with suspicion. Somebody will point out to us something that may need to be addressed, an issue we may need to work on, and we kind of wonder, ooh, um, how many other people have they talked to about this? Uh, you wouldn't say that you're a neurotic, but you suddenly find yourself watching your kids play football, and every time your kids go into the huddle, you wonder if they're talking about you. That's often the reaction when it comes to being admonished. You start to wonder who else knows about this. You get into suspicion mode. And, and you start to make it a bigger deal than it actually is. Because remember what Paul has done. From chapter 1 through chapter 11, he's basically made sin the great leveler. No one has a right to get on a pedestal and look, pedestal and look down on us. But unfortunately, when we're redirected like this, we often feel suspicious. Who else knows? Who have you talked about? Who have you told this to? And all of a sudden, our minds go into kind of conspiracy mode. That's not a helpful way of doing it. Again, take a step back. Say, Holy Spirit, stop me thinking like that. Thirdly, we accept it with resignation. We get quickly despondent. In fact, our friends could give us the name Jigsaw because every time we redir we're redirected, we fall to pieces. Again, ask yourself, if that's you, ask yourself, where does that come from? Why, when someone points out one little thing that's wrong, I get so defensive and get so depressed as if my life is going to fall to pieces. Do you not know what we've been singing about? That you're a child of God, you are deeply loved, you are accepted, no matter what you do? If we acknowledge, bless you, if we acknowledge, if we acknowledge who we are in Christ, it becomes a lot easier for us to be redirected. Lastly, I think what we're supposed to do is accept it with gratitude. Let me be honest, it's really hard, really difficult to respond to admonishment with gratitude, but I believe it's the wisest thing to do. I love Proverbs 15:23. It says this: "A person finds joy in giving an apt reply." 
the person who God has brought into our life, who we're doing life with, speaks that right word in the right reason, uh, in the right season for the right reason, in the right way, and, and they find joy in doing that. And what is our response to be? Basically, we say how good it is to receive that timely word. Gratitude grows when we receive a timely word about our life from a friend. It grows because if we do the right thing with this word, we'll notice that in three months, four months, five months, six months from now, we'll actually be changed. Remember what we said a few weeks ago, Tim Keller said, if you receive and start to read and engage with the word of God right now, it may not change you tomorrow, but it will in six months. Admonishment is the hard part of spiritual growth. You see, growing demands change, and change is hard. Therefore, growth is hard. Admonishment is the hard part of spiritual growth. Let me encourage you. The next time that you are instructed, you are admonished, you are exhorted, you are warned, let me encourage you to go out on a limb. How many of you know that the limb is the best place to go because that's where all the fruit is? Go out on a limb. Do something you've never done before and actually start to thank God that you have friends in your life that love you enough to accept you no matter what you do and speak the truth to you eye to eye, not speak behind your back and backstab you, but actually speak the truth to you eye to eye and walk you through that decision. If you view admonishment this way, you view it biblically. That's when we start to grow. That's when we truly start to one another, one another. And I honestly believe that Paul has written verse 5, uh, chapter 15 of Romans the way he has for a reason. He starts with harmony. He moves on to acceptance in order to get to instruction. Because friends, without harmony... Agreeing to disagree and not destroying the glory of God without acceptance, it's very difficult to do instruction. Let's live in such a way that we practice harmony, acceptance, and we build the type of relationships where we can instruct one another. Let's live like that. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. One of the great things about the book of Romans is how Paul structures it. From chapter 2, well, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, he just lays out the truth, the truth that we all believe, the truth about Christ, the truth about ourselves, that even though we were separated from him because of sin, Christ Jesus died for us. With a message like this today, it's possible for many of us to be convicted about the way we either admonish or the way we receive it. While that is true, let me encourage you in this still moment to acknowledge the truth that God loves you. Father, I want to pray that you would do an incredible work in our lives, that you would deepen our relational foundation as your people, 
may we be encouraged and inspired to look beyond faith in terms of one hour on a Sunday morning, but in terms of a commitment to the very people of God that you've placed us around. May you deepen those relational ties. May you build harmony and acceptance even deeper into the experience of our community. And may that, Father, lead to biblical instruction. An instruction based on the truth about you, Father, about what you have done, Lord Jesus, and about the work of the Holy Spirit. And Father, where you have challenged us today, may we respond in the way that your Spirit is calling us to. May we be obedient to the word that you have sown into our hearts, and we pray that you would seal that word so that we would be changed from glory into glory. And it's in the glorious name of Jesus we pray.